The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles or on your app, uh, and we're in Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 17. So Philippians is right between Ephesians and Colossians. If you're flipping through your Bible there, it's like back third uh, of your Bible. If you don't have a Bible of your own, we really, really want to give you one if you want one. So we want everyone to have a Bible. We believe the Bible's real, real cool, and everyone should have one that wants one. So we have free ones. Please let us know if you want one. We'll get you that. Ask an usher. Ask somebody in the back after service. We'll get you a Bible. Uh, if you don't have either a Bible app or a Bible with you today, we'll have the verses on the screens. You can follow along that way or just listen as we read God's Word together. Uh, we are continuing this week in our series. It's called Joy, and we've been taking a journey through Philippians. So we've just been going verse by verse through this really powerful book. It's, it's a letter, a pastoral letter from Paul to the church at Philippi. He had planted that church several years earlier. Uh, and so last week together, we, we saw the power of focusing on the real goal of life and the joy-filled freedom that comes from spirit-empowered striving for a godly perspective. I believe God really helped us uh, through that study. This week, we're going to hear of the joyous privilege and responsibility of living as citizens of heaven. Praise God for that. So we're in Philippians 3, and we're going to start in verse 17. We're going to read to verse 21. We'll finish out chapter 3 today. Praise God. Here we go. Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. For many walk, of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. For our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of His glory, by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Praise God for his word. Uh, before we start breaking this down, I just want us to remember the context and, and remember the flow of thought we're in. So let's remember this is still a part of the flow of thought that started with this admonition from the Apostle Paul. He said, finally, this is the beginning of chapter 3, finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord... To write the same things again is no trouble to me and is a safeguard for you. And so what he's doing and what we're dealing with, we are still dealing here with the profoundly simple and yet infinitely applicable gospel principles that lead to true joy. So essentially what he says is, uh, rejoice in the Lord. And then he says, I'm going to write some stuff to you that you've probably heard before, but this is a safeguard for you because I love you. I'm not real worried about making sure you like what I write. I'm going to write something to you that's going to matter in, in, in the context of what I'm talking about. So he says, rejoice in the Lord. And then essentially the rest of the chapter is telling us how do you rejoice in the Lord? And really, if you look at the rest of the chapter, it's essentially just hitting gospel principles from a different angle with some direct application. And so again, he's turning us towards this idea that true, deep, profound, eternal joy is going to be found in Jesus and his gospel alone. And to that I say, amen. Uh, so let's start in verse 17, okay? 
Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. This verse lays out a principle that is often underemphasized or even scorned by many. Um, some folks might bristle at the idea of Paul telling the Philippians to follow his example. Maybe you felt yourself bristle a little bit at that. Okay, so why? Why, why would that not jive with our paradigm? Okay, partly because our country was founded on ideas of individual and personal liberty. We have a pretty odd cultural lens with which we view most things. Uh, we need to know and understand that most cultures and societies like throughout history, uh, and even really still some today where like our ideologies have not yet reached uh, and taken hold, those cultures saw themselves very much tied to the family, clan, tribe, or society uh, that they were a part of. Uh, th this is not to say that those ideas were 100% correct, right? Because a balance between personal choice and responsibility along with a sense of duty to family, tribe, or society is a more balanced and healthy way to approach things. We don't want to get over off into the ditch on either side of that. However, we, just because of the time and place where God has placed us, we probably tend more towards having a hard time understanding why it's okay for Paul to say what he said in verse 17, because we tend to be very personal, very ruggedly individualistic. We talk very much about a personal relationship with Jesus, which is true and is a beautiful truth, that the, the king of all glory, right, the, the one that was there before the foundations of the earth, the, the, the perfect holy lamb that was slain, uh, King Jesus himself desires a personal relationship with us, but but that personal relationship with each of us is so, is so intimately tied to the relationship with all of us that they, they can't be pulled apart, right? John 15, Jesus says, I'm the vine, you're the branches, okay? I, I've never seen a branch that was able to be connected to a vine without being connected to the other branches. It doesn't work. So we're not in this thing on our own. Um, and that's part of why verse 17 shouldn't strike our ear as weird as maybe it sometimes does. So in, in light of that, and maybe let's, let's give Paul a pass right off the jump if maybe it, it offends our sensibilities a little bit that he said, you should follow my example. I, I want to give you a few reasons why I think we should heed this wisdom. I mean, I, I didn't put this one in there, but it, it's in the Bible. So in, right off the bat, if I hit something in the Bible that offends my sensibilities, I got a couple choices. I can either go, okay, well, I've found this place where my superior intellect and, and the fact that I've evolved beyond the wisdom of the Bible. I've found this place now where I'm going to have to ignore that because, I mean, I know better. So I can take that uh, approach, which is a, let's not do that, right? Uh, or I can say, okay, this is offending my sensibilities or this, this to, some, to some degree doesn't, doesn't fit into my paradigm. So now I need, to for, I need to make myself go through a process of assessing, why is that? Why do I maybe not like what that says? Or why does that not sound right to me? And assume from the jump, really more than, assume, I'll use a stronger word, I need to know that if, if, if it's in God's word, there's something that needs to change in me, not something that needs to change in God's word. So I need to bend and conform to this as opposed to making this bend and conform to me. I left a gap there thinking there'd be an amen. I think there was one. Anybody else got one? You good with that? All right, good. Don't make me amen myself up here, guys. That gets awkward quick, okay? All right, so... Um, 
A few reasons I think we should heed this wisdom, aside from the fact that it's in God's scriptures, and thus we should just say yes and amen. First of all, the first thing we need to see here, I think, is that Paul is not being egotistical, right? At a surface reading, it could sound that way, like follow my example. That could sound a little bit like, hold on, bro. You know what I mean? Um, so here's a couple of reasons why I don't think he's being egotistical. First of all, he says, uh, join in following my example and observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so you don't get this idea. He's not doing the um, I'm God's holy man shtick, right? That, that some people have done and, and abused the position and authority God has given them in, in the body of Christ to get people to think like they are, they are the pinnacle of exemplary Christianity and everyone should only look to them as an example, right? He, he's very quick to say, follow the example you've seen in me, but also observe those others who walk according to the pattern you have in us. And so it's not this very singular focus, I'm your example, I'm your pseudo-Jesus, but, but he's saying look to those that are, are following the standard that has already been set by Jesus and his gospel and, and don't be afraid to uh, look to them as an example and emulate them. So Reason number one, I don't think he's being egotistical. He's not saying just me, look at me, be like me. The second reason, I think, is, is that what he's saying here, following my example, um, and he says, observe those who walk according to the pattern you have in us, that's, that's tied very directly to the scriptures before it. And so what he just got done doing was he, he, that pattern or example that he's saying to follow, he, he is defining by and through Jesus. So let's, let's just flip back. I'm not going to re-preach the sermon from last week, I promise. I know you're scared. Like, hold on, man. You can't even get through the ones you're doing this week. I know. We won't stay here long, I promise. I'm just referencing it. Come on, trust me. Come with me. Turn your page back. All right. Maybe you don't have to in your Bible. I do. So, so what's he say? So verse 13, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So then he says, let us therefore, as many as are perfect or mature, have this attitude. Uh, and if anything, you have a different attitude, God will reveal that to you. However, let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. That standard is that we are forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward to what lies ahead, to that great and glorious goal of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so the standard, the example, all of that is tied back to the character and the example of of Christ Jesus. And so if anybody's calling you to, to follow after their example or without tying it to the fact that they're following after Jesus, that's a big red flag. We're not doing that. And so he's not saying, look at me, do things how I do things. He's like, hey, I'm doing things like, I'm doing my best to do things like Jesus does things. He'd already said just a few scriptures before, I know I'm not perfect yet. I'm striving to be like Jesus. Sometimes it's very helpful to have an example other than just what we have in the word in practicalities, right? Because, well, we'll get to that in a second. I don't want to get ahead of myself. Okay. So the bottom line is he ties his example to the example of Christ. So he's not saying, I'm the bomb, follow me. He's saying, Jesus is the bomb. I'm following him. Come on. You can also come behind on that. All right. I think also it would just be assumed by the reader's because of Paul's, Paul's teaching around this type of thing, always included this type of language. I think it's included here. It's just not as obvious as when he said something very similar in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 1, where he said, imitate me. Anybody upset yet? Hold on. As I also imitate Christ. 
right? So really he's saying the same thing here. It just, you got to pay better attention to hear it. He's tying the example that he's calling them to follow to the character, to the standard, to the example, uh, to the call of Christ Jesus, okay? So Paul's never, ever calling someone, come after, follow after me. It's like, hey, come with me and let's follow Christ, right? Amen. Okay, so that's, that's a big deal. That's one reason we shouldn't worry, be concerned about um, doing what he says here, which is to be able to follow uh, <clears throat> the example of somebody that we're serving with in the body of Christ, okay? Uh, bottom line, truth, before we go any further, we are going to need the help of the Holy Spirit to first obey chapter 2, verse 3 of Philippians before we're going to be able to obey these verses. Here's what chapter 2, verse 3 in the book of Philippians says. It says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. If we don't get that right, there's no way we're going to be able to faithfully uh, obey or get the advantages of being able to follow the example of others who are in the body of Christ. If we are doing things out of selfishness or empty conceit, or we are not regarding others as more important than ourselves, but, but essentially we always know a reason why I'm better than that person, then it never allows you to be able to glean from, learn from, humbly receive from the example of someone else who's following Jesus. So if, if Philippians 2 verse 3 is not active in our life, this, this verse 17 admonition to us is, is going to totally malfunction. It won't work, Okay. So I give, I'm giving you a second reason now why I think it's okay to heed verse 17. The second big reason I see is that this kind of, uh, for us to heed this kind of wisdom is that this kind of thinking constantly cultivates humility and unity, okay? Um, here's the truth. Many people hide their pride behind a religious facade. Here's what they'll, they'll say things like this. <clears throat> I only need Jesus as my example. Right? So, what? okay, and that sounds pretty holy. Like, what? wow, wow. You're not trusting in men? Like, straight, straight with Jesus. Wow, you, you are so holy. Right? But here's, here's really what that is. Sometimes, what that really means is they feel so awesome that they couldn't learn from anybody other than Jesus. Yeah, that popped your balloon, didn't it? That didn't really sound like a balloon pop, but I don't know how to do that with my mouth, so. <laughs> Use your imagination. All right. You see what I'm saying, though? You see how we can hide our pride behind seemingly very pious and religious statements? That's not the only one, but we don't have time for all of them. Uh, now, I want to I be sensitive to this and, and just say that I understand, to be sure, sometimes pain and trust issues, and sometimes those are warranted, are factors for this type of thinking, that uh, you know, it's just going to be me and Jesus and nobody else. I don't care about anybody else's example, um, whatever. But even, even pain and trust issues, are, are, those don't excuse us from humbly acknowledging the strengths of others and learning from their example as they follow Jesus. So if we've got pain and trust issues that stops us from being able to obey verse 17, following the example of those who are following Jesus... That's a problem with us, and that's, that's not something we can just sit on the shelf and say, well, you know, it's just how I am. This is something we need to submit ourselves to what the Word says, ask why that's a challenge, why that's a struggle, and ask God for the humility to um, 
you know, get past that. The, the humility and also the ability to forgive by His grace whatever pain has caused that reticence, okay? Um, we, I think we should have pastors like Paul and other ministry leaders whose example we try to follow, but we also should learn from each other, uh, kind of broadly in, in the house of God, the body of Christ. Um, the, the, the truth is, by God's grace, some of you are more patient, some of you are more bold, some of you are more thoughtful, uh, some of you excel in prayer and Bible study. Some of you excel in generosity and evangelism. Uh, we have the incredible privilege of a variety of gifts and godly examples within the body of Christ, and we should try to observe and learn from all of them. Um, I, I, just, I just want you guys to know, like, there's, there's pastors and Christian leaders, most of them older than me, that I believe have faithfully uh, survived and, 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 and even excelled in the position of being a shepherd and a Bible teacher. They, they didn't burn out or, you know, give up or end up falling into some sin that ended up disqualifying them. They've, they've served long and faithfully, and, and they're faithful Bible teachers. And so I do, I look up to them as an example, and I try to, I try to emulate much of what they do. But, but the reality is there's many of you that I, I look to strengths that you have and try to emulate. There are many of you that are much more patient than I am. Um, there are many of you that, that do things in the way you parent your children that I, I'm like, you know what, that's really wise and that's a good idea. Um, some of you are, are, are just super generous and that's a great conviction and, and, and it's a, it spurs me on to loving good works. And so I'm, I'm not only looking um, to other ministers or pastors for, for this type of wisdom that I'm learning from their example. I, I learned from many of you, um, and, and I'm thankful for that gift. I think it's a beautiful gift and a privilege for us. It's a help for us from the Lord, but without the humility to look, and, and we've got to be secure enough in ourselves to be able to acknowledge the strengths of other people, right? Because insecure people won't do that, because as soon as they acknowledge someone else's strength, they feel like that's undermining their own, like, show, right? And so <clears throat> we don't need to do that, because we're, we're strong in really diverse ways. We have different gifts, and when you put us all together, uh, it makes us more capable to accomplish uh, the incredible task God has given us of getting this beautiful gospel to all the ends of the earth, to as many people as possible. So we need each other, and uh, I want to keep learning from you. Um, I, I hope there's one or two things you can learn from me. Praise God. Uh, the third reason I believe this is wise and helpful for us is that it forces us to ask ourselves this question. I think it should force us to think this are we someone that others can observe and follow? Not only should we look to our ability to obey this and, and humbly observe other people and learn from their example, but I think we also should ask ourselves, are we someone others can observe and follow safely? What, what would we lead them towards? What, what example would they see, right? Uh, I think the reality is when Paul wrote this letter, the New Testament was not gathered and in widespread circulation yet, and so at this very moment, if, if people wanted to know what Jesus was about, they often had to look at his followers. Uh, that's not just because the New Testament is compiled, sealed, and done by God's grace and is in wide circulation doesn't mean people are reading it today. <laughs> and so sometimes this is still true. If people want to know what Jesus is about, they, they oftentimes look to his followers. Um. I guess the question is, another way to say this, something to, I think should be a loving challenge to us, 
if someone only had you and your life as an example, what would they believe about our God? I think that's a great question to ask yourself. I think that's something to push yourself with um, and not easily dismiss. Because the reality is, whether you're aware of it or not, there are likely people observing your life, unless you've been totally silent about the fact that you're associated with Jesus and you've hid that super well, if you've let the cat out of the bag that you love the Lord and you're a Bible person, there's probably somebody observing your life looking for this kind of example to some varying degree. And so we should, we should ask ourselves that question. We should make ourselves stretch with our imagination to, to think, okay, so what are they seeing? What do they believe about God if, if they're not reading the Bible, but they're listening to what I say and they're watching what I do? Um, I think in saying that, though, I need to also kind of balance, counterbalance the weight there a little bit and, and say this idea of living as an example to others should not be overemphasized at the expense of faithful gospel proclamation. Okay, so I want to say that another way. What, what I mean when I say that is the, the unfortunately famous quote, uh, preach the gospel, use words if necessary, is, is a bit misguided. Um, and some of, you, I, some of you might really like that. And I'm sorry, but not really, right? Because I'm going to tell you why it's a little bit misguided. Um, good deeds, even great deeds of love and sacrifice, will not preach the gospel themselves. They are not sufficient. The problem with even great deeds of love and sacrifice is that they leave open the misinterpretation that that person performing the good deeds is just so amazing, right? I mean, I don't know if you've ever, I don't know if you've ever done something, no matter what your motives were, hopefully in the name of the Lord you were doing something because he's loved you and you wanted to reflect his love and glory to the world. I don't know if you've ever done a, a good deed and been put in a position where you, you had to kind of corral somebody's appreciation back towards the Lord about it, right? Like, I, I've, I've been in that situation where I've done something, and they, they wanted to come talk to me about how great it was that I did that, and it's like, I'm like, hold on a second. Uh, without the Lord Jesus doing what he's done to me, I would not be a great guy, nor would I be spending my time doing anything nice for you. It's because of Jesus, front to back, the whole way. And so he deserves all the glory for this. And so um, the, the problem is if we aren't quick to point the glory to God, if we aren't quick to connect the fact that it's, it's the gospel that changes us that allows us to go, do good deeds with pure motives, right? Because good deeds done for selfish motives are still jacked up, right? And so we're, we're not just looking to do good things. We're looking to do good things for the right reasons. And if we don't speak about what those reasons are, if we're not willing to say to somebody, it's, it's Jesus that's changed my heart and made me care more about what you need than what I need, uh, it's, it's for his glory and to reflect his love and goodness to the world that I'm doing these things. Uh, without speaking that out, uh, very rarely are people going to get that message from just the deed itself. Um, or somebody might think you're doing what you're doing um, so that you can earn the love or favor of God, right? They may totally miss the gospel and they may think you're doing that good thing um, because you, maybe they believe if you do good things, then you get 
gold stars in heaven, or that's how salvation works, or whatever. And so they just think, oh, hey, man, that person's probably going to heaven. Look at the good things they're doing. People could see that and, and end up there. And so without, I mean, I'm not, a, let me make sure I say, I'm not against good deeds, right? We should be doing great deeds of love and sacrifice for the good of others, hoping that it opens doors and opportunities to talk about Jesus uh, and, and his loving sacrifice, which is our motivation. So we just, we can't, we can't think if we, if we just are doing good things, but we're not trusting God for the opportunities to speak about the reasons and speak about the truth of the gospel, that people are just going to get the gospel by good deed osmosis, right? That's a scientific term if you look it up. It's in the Encyclopedia Britannica. So you got to get the updated version, though. It's not in the old one, all right? Uh, but that, that doesn't work, okay? So um, our life and example matters greatly but we can't put all of our eggs in that basket, right? You all right, you all right with that tension? That, that, that's all true, okay? All right, verses 18 and 19. Uh, before we get into this, let's remember, the beginning of the chapter calls us to rejoice in the Lord, and here we are still being given encouragement on how to do that and warnings to watch out for, things to look out for that are going to be enemies of that joy, uh, and, and ability to rejoice in the Lord. So, to rejoice in the Lord, we must delight in his benevolent boundaries, and we need to seek to obey his loving laws. To rejoice in the Lord, we must understand and believe that he loved us before we ever loved him. To rejoice in the Lord, we must believe the gospel. And that is why so much of this chapter shines light on its enemies. Paul starts his flow of thought, rejoice in the Lord. It, it, it's no pain for me to write things to you I've already written or we've already talked about. And then he, he starts going into the list and he really, what he starts doing is listing enemies, listing things that are going to make it hard for you to obey that first command to rejoice in the Lord. And we think like that's, that should be a given. That should be an easy one. Rejoice in the Lord. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I love God. It's all good. Sure, I, I can rejoice in him. But we, what we fail to understand and what Paul's trying to illuminate to us here is there, there is a God in heaven that loves us, but there's also a devil in hell that hates God and all his people and doesn't want anybody rejoicing in the Lord, wants them rejoicing in everything but the Lord so that they end up crumpled and broken and devastated at the end of this thing. There are constant enemies to us being able to find our true, deep joy in God and his gospel, Okay? The, the truth is, and this is illuminated throughout this chapter, the gospel is always being attacked by two thieves seeking to steal its power. And much of this chapter has, folk, this chapter has focused on the falsely religious kind of folks. They're otherwise known as moralists, right? Do you, do you remember, if, if you remember back, right as soon as, as soon as Paul gets done with rejoicing the Lord, now I'm going to write some stuff to you again as a safeguard to you. He goes right into beware of the dogs, right? He starts throwing out some harsh language, and, and what he's talking about is he's talking about people that are trying to add to the gospel, say, you got to do this and that, you got you to do this in addition to putting trust and faith in the finished work of Christ. There, that, that is still a problem. Most of the time, people don't say it overtly. Nobody's coming to you and saying, hey, you need to get circumcised in addition to trusting in the Lord, right? But, but it comes almost covertly, right? It, it's, it's messaging that tells you, yeah, 
salvation's by, by grace through faith in Christ alone, but there's, I mean, there's also this other stuff. If, if, I mean, if, if you don't get that right, you're probably not in. It's, it's most of the time not direct, but, but it's, it's subtle. And that's the way Satan is. He's a deceiver. I don't like to give him any credit, but he's super good at lying. And so we need to be super good at sniffing out lies, right? That's what Ephesians 6 says. Be aware of the schemes of the enemy because he's trying them. Uh, he's not giving up, okay? He's so blinded by pride that it's, it's made him deaf, dumb, and stupid, and, and he still thinks somehow he's going to get a leg up on God. Uh, the end of the book says he gets crushed and loses, which actually the end of this chapter is going to say that too. So <clears throat> praise God for that. Uh, but in the meantime, we've got to deal with this foolishness. So, uh, But the gospel is being attacked by, by moralists or moralism. Moralism steals power and joy from the gospel because it promotes the prideful belief that we can earn God's love or be justified through our own effort. So do you, do you un, I, need, I need to camp here just a second. Do you understand why a moralistic framework would steal power from the gospel? If somebody believes they have the power or, or the, the goodness in and of themselves to find favor with God or be justified before God or be found righteous before God, do you understand why that belief would steal power from the gospel for them? Somebody that believes they're good enough or so good that God must love them, why would the gospel matter to them at all? Because the first premise of the gospel that Jesus needed to come and die, doesn't, they don't even think it applies to them. That is how moralism steals away power from the gospel. And it's constantly trying to do that in the hearts and minds of people. Now, that's, much of this chapter was focused on moralism, but attention now turns to this other thief. That thief is relativism, and it steals power from the gospel because it convinces us that sin and selfishness is not that bad. In so doing, it's, it's convincing us the gospel is unneeded. It promotes the prideful belief that our moral compass is more finely tuned than God's, and whatever we deem acceptable must be. Relativism essentially tells you, however you get here, you're essentially a good person, you're evolved uh, morally and academically, intellectually, whatever, however you get to this belief that, that somehow God and his scriptures are, are kind of old and archaic and, 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 and you know, not really to be trusted, but you, oh enlightened one, whatever it is you think... Um, based on all of your influences and intellect, uh, that's, that's right. Your, your, your moral compass points true north. You know, God's is cocked over towards northeast a little bit. And so you, you got to kind of, maybe there's some cool things you can pull out of the scriptures, but at the end of the day, some of it's going to have to be dropped off because it just, it just doesn't apply to us today. No deal. Uh, our moral compass is not more finely tuned than God's. Um, he absolutely is the source of all that is good. He determines uh, what is evil. He is all-knowing. We are not. He created everything. We did not. He is omnipotent. We are not. He is omniscient. We are not. Uh, the list goes on and on. He's completely, totally holy and perfect. We are not. Our sense of justice, our sense of good and evil, our sense of morality is skewed by the effects of sin. The great hope is the longer we walk with the Lord, the more our compass is being adjusted to His. The more our sensitivities 
and, and our understanding of what is right and wrong is being adjusted to His. He is the standard. He is the Creator. Uh, and His Word is how He has expressed to us what it is He thinks on these issues. Uh, I really hear the echo of Romans 1 in, in this description. Let me, let me read this. I'm, I'm in Romans 1, verse 28. Don't, don't turn there. Just listen. See if you hear the same echo as I do in this description. Here's what he says there. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. As we keep moving on here, saying, for many, many walk, of whom often I have told you, and now I tell you even weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Said he said, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame, who set their minds on earthly things. That is troubling, because not only is that true of people that do not claim to follow Christ, but it's very clear that it's also true sometimes of those that do. I just, on kind of a personal note, just to share with you, uh, I am very thankful for these verses. I'm very thankful for verse 18 in particular, because in a weird way, it brings me hope. Um, it, it, it lets me know that I am not alone in shedding tears over the foolish and self-destructive actions of people. Um, I, I have pled through tear-filled eyes with more than one person this week. I have pleaded with them to stop running headlong towards destruction. And I think it's super interesting that you don't hear about Paul crying much, do you? You don't, he didn't cry about being tortured or shipwrecked, stoned for the faith. He wasn't crying about being in jail for the faith. He shed tears over those who through willful rebellion made themselves enemies of the cross. Uh, and I just want to say I can feel you, Pastor Paul. You know what I mean? Because, man, sometimes uh, this, it's, it's just heavy. When, when you, you either know people know better or you thought they knew better, and uh, you, end up, you end up with tear-filled eyes, man, just pleading with people to stop because you can see, you can see the end of the road. You can see where that path ends. Um, and, and again, I've told you, I, I feel like Philippians is one of the more raw letters that Paul wrote. He's just kind of putting it out there. Um, 
And he's saying right here, man, many walk, and I've often told you, and I'm now even telling you through weeping, that they are enemies of the cross of Christ. And that's, it's kind of obvious that, that people that don't believe in Jesus act this way, but unfortunately, the, the more... The more devastating enemy to the cross of Christ is somebody that claims to follow Christ but still acts this way. And I'll talk, I'll talk to you about why. Um, I think sometimes what we fail to see very often is that sin and rebellion never only hurts the one committing it. There is always collateral damage. Always. And so I'm going to give you just a few obvious ways that I see that happening so, so that you can think about that. And, and, and maybe, maybe you'll be in a situation where you'll be talking to somebody and, and, and God's trying to use you to be a roadblock for someone that's, that's heading towards destruction. Um, here's, here's how I see collateral damage happening when people are in, in just willful rebellion and how other people get hurt. Uh, people who love those that are sinning are forced to watch as they heap up destruction for themselves. That in and of itself, I think, is just an obvious part of how there's collateral damage every time someone chooses willful, sinful rebellion against the loving laws of God. Because unless that person has lived their whole life as a hermit in a cave, there's people that know them and love them, and, and they have to watch while that person decides to continue on in that sinful rebellion and heap up for themselves destruction and pain. And so... They're not only bringing pain and hurt on themselves, everybody that loves them and has to watch has to hurt. So we need to think about that, right? We need to know that our choices don't happen in a vacuum, uh, and it's not only us that we affect. Any time, this, this should help us, any time we are faced with a decision to either obey God or disobey God, we should never, we should never be so foolish as to think, only think of the consequences in, in, in a in a singular fashion. Okay, well, here's how this is going to affect me. Force yourself, dear friend, to stop and think, not only how that's going to affect you, because maybe you're cool with the effect on you. Well, if I do that, I really want to do this right now, whatever that thing is, and yeah, maybe this or this or this will happen. You know what? It's worth it. I'll take, I'll, you know, I'll spin the roulette wheel on that one. But please, friend, force yourself to think outside of your own context. Who else is going to be hurt by this? Who else is going to have to watch? Who else is going to suffer? If you decide to make this choice, who else is going to have to feel that pain? And hopefully the love of God in you will, will take over. And even if you don't care enough about the consequences for yourself, maybe, maybe the love of God will cause you to not want to cause consequences for someone else. Every single time, every single time we rebel against God, there's collateral damage. There's other people that get hurt. Is that true or not true? You hearing me? It's true, man. So that's the first way. The second way I see there's always collateral damage is that those who are charged with keeping watch over the souls of the people that are making those choices have to agonize through tears as they feel the weight of the self-inflicted pain that those who are disobeying God are enduring. That's what Paul's talking about here, and that's what I'm telling you is so real. So even, you know, I, I realize that... Um, Maybe in a rugged, individualistic Western society, it's hard for you to even grasp, but, but what God does, when he calls a man to be a shepherd of people, what he did with Paul, and I believe what he's done with me, 
what happens is you don't, you don't just feel your own stuff, man. You really begin to, you feel the weight of other people's struggle and suffering. And, and the Bible commands us as Christians to, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. And that's an, like at an everybody level. Like we're, we're connected because of Christ, right? And so we, we are a family in a very real sense, in an eternal sense. That, that transcends even the, the closeness of, of biological family. So that's real. But I'm just telling you, there is a weight and a burden that those who are called to watch over the souls of God's people, to shepherd God's people, there's a, there's a weight that they carry. And if, um, if, you, you know, if, you're running through the, if you're going through the choice selection process of, okay, I'm going to rebel and go do what I want to do, or I'm, I'm going to end up obeying God here and, and not go down the road of destruction. You know, if you think about your mom, you think about your husband or wife, think about your kids, you think about your brothers and sisters, you think about your friends and everyone else, um, and you're like, eh, I don't think this is going to affect them that much. And so then you're, you're teetering towards going ahead and doing it. Just, just think about somebody that loves you and has been called by God to care after your soul and understand when you make that choice, that's going to be a, that's going to be a, a weight they're going to have to carry and that's something they're going to have to pray through and something that's going to be a struggle for them. Ultimately, you got to, when you're in that position, you got to trust the Lord. But it does, it matters, man. That's what Paul's weeping about here. He's not sad because he's in jail. He's sad because people are rushing headlong towards destruction and don't see it. They're making themselves enemies of the cross. It's breaking his heart, man. I hope you care about that because it's really real. Uh, thirdly, <clears throat> um, the third way we, we, we see this collateral damage is they become enemies even of the cross and of the gospel. So, so people get hurt uh, all kinds of ways, but also the Bible says that they become enemies of the cross and the gospel. And you might say, well, how is that? How is that somebody choosing to let their God be their appetite? And what does that mean? Is it like, it, it doesn't, the connotation isn't here in the original language that it's just about food. Though for some of us, let's be honest, uh, <laughs> Much of our schedule is dictated by munch munch time. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I'll be honest. You don't have to be. I'll I'll do it since I'm up here. Okay. So yeah, this 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 guy may, he calls some shots. <laughs> Unfortunately, more shots than he should be calling. Um, but it's this appetite language is not just about what you eat or don't eat. It's about lusts and like your general broad what's driving you, your appetites. Okay. And so. Um, that can mean all different kinds of things, uh, all different kinds of kind of false saviors. So um, how does someone become an enemy of the cross and the gospel? Well, claiming to be a Christian because they claim that they love Jesus and follow him, but refuse to obey him, what that does is it preaches a false gospel to the world, which is stripped of its beauty and transforming power. If you're running around saying, I'm a Christian, and, you know, you People, the Bible's gotten enough press throughout the world that, that most people, especially in America, they know at least some of what it says. Um, most of them have favorite verses about like not judging, and they think that means ever, right? But <laughs> don't, don't get me started on that. Don't you all do that, okay? We don't have time for that. Um, but the reality is, man, and that's part of what Romans 1 is talking about too, there's... We, because we were made in the image of God, to some degree we have like an innate understanding of, of, of like universal morality. And so um, 
you're running around saying, I know Jesus, I love Jesus, and you're, you're, you're doing everything that people know Jesus said not to do, it preaches a false gospel. And, and it, it shows them, oh, yeah, so the hypocrisy that always gets lobbed at the church, that's true. Here's another example. And by in so doing, you make yourself an enemy of the cross, not an enemy of some representation of the cross, literally an enemy of the mission of the cross of Christ, the, the, the glorious gospel going forward. You are impeding its progress by saying, I love Jesus, I serve Jesus, but not remembering what Jesus said, man. He said, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. The beautiful thing is we get to do this out of a love relationship, not out of a dictatorial tyrant type thing where we're afraid God's going to lightning bolt us like Zeus, and so I'm always looking over my shoulder trying to make sure I do the right thing and walk on eggshells. The beautiful thing is I get to obey him because I believe fully and totally, and it's declared to me vibrantly through the cross of Christ, that God really loves me and cares for me. And so out of that, it, it should conjure in me a love for him, and out of that love, a desire to obey him. This doesn't mean um, we become an enemy of the cross or an enemy of the gospel every time we sin. That's not what's being talked about here. It's, being, it's talking about people who, whose end is destruction, whose God is their appetite, and whose glory is in their shame. That glory in their shame is the same idea as we heard in Romans 1 that I read to you earlier, where it's not only do they do the things forbidden by God, but they give hearty approval to those that do it as well. They're so deadened in their convictions that not only are they doing the stuff, but they're, they're clapping for other people that are doing it. They're so far off. They've, they've quieted the conviction of the Holy Spirit for so long that like it says in uh, the book of Timothy, their conscience has become seared as with an iron. They they, they literally get to the point where they're not feeling conviction anymore, and they're, they're turned over uh, to their own depravity. And so, the, so what do we do with all that? Be, be wise enough to understand what that end destruction looks like, and so don't even, don't even jump on that road, right? Or as soon as you notice that you are outside of the benevolent boundaries of God, or you have defied His loving laws, as soon as you realize that, don't, don't say, oh, well... I've gone this far. Let me see what's at the end of the path. Here's what's at the end of the path. Let me tell you very plainly and clearly today, friend. I love you. The end of that path is destruction. And it's not just going to destroy you. A bunch of other people have to watch that. It's going to destroy them and hurt them too. So let's let the love of God cause us to obey God. Let's let the love of God cause us not to hurt other people by our sin and our willful rebellion. And let's cause our love for God to help us not want to be enemies of the cross or impede for one second the beautiful work of his gospel going into the world. Amen. I will amen myself on that one since you didn't because I know that was an amen spot right there. Praise God. I know you're just thinking about it. It's all right. I thought this series was about joy. It is. It is. But if we get, if, that's what I'm talking about. If we get this stuff right, man, joy will flow easier. These are the things, these are the enemies of joy we have to deal with. That's how Paul framed it, rejoice in the Lord. Now I'm about to hammer y'all. Here's the enemies that you're getting fooled by very often. Let's deal with them. Let's get them out of the way because I want you to be able to rejoice in the Lord. Praise God. Uh, I think we would all do well to assess our reaction to the sins of others. Righteous anger is a godly and sometimes appropriate response, but prideful judgment or smug self-righteousness never is. I hope you understand the difference between that.
If we truly understand that sin leads to death and pain, and we truly love people even when they choose to disobey God, then we should find ourselves praying and pleading with them even through tears at times. I'm just going to prepare you for this. Maybe you already know this. Maybe this, maybe this idea of like really, really caring when someone else is, is destroying their life is, is new to you and you're not realizing that's kind of part of the package of being in God's family. And so if, if your heart's being opened up to that idea and, and you're going to begin to do that, let me just tell you this in preparation. It's, really, it's like even harder when you, when you really do care that much and you do plead with them through tears uh, and they still refuse to repent and turn from their sin. That's, that's so difficult. Um, but it is in those times that we are reminded of who our trust must really be in. Um, because he alone has the power to change our hearts. And his name is Jesus. Guys, I'm, I'm just going to tell you, uh, if I had any delusion about my own ability to change human hearts or minds um, without the help of God, it, it definitely was handled this week. <laughs> so I'm just telling you right now, caring about other people's lives and, and letting yourself love them enough to be bothered when they're headed towards destruction it's going to open up vulnerability. And if you really do find yourself weeping through tears about somebody else's struggles with sin, um, that's hard. And then it's, it's really hard when you put yourself out there and, and plead with them with everything you got to stop. And, and then they hang up the phone or look you in the eye and walk away or don't care about it or whatever. And I'm just telling you, but when you, if you hit that spot, Turn to our wonderful Savior, because that's where you should have been to begin with, right? Like, if you're going to care about other people's stuff, and if you're going to try to help anybody in any way, if you don't, if you, if you don't have the master's help from the beginning, it, none of it's going to work anyways. And so, really, you just, it's just a reminder when somebody rejects the loving pleading of somebody, uh, even through tears, it just, it just reminds us and, and brings back into sharp focus the fact that ultimately, Anything uh, that's going to be helpful to somebody struggling in that way is going to be from the Lord Jesus. So our trust needs to be in him from, from beginning to end uh, as we care about the lives of others. All right? I, just, I, I wanted to give you that because, because my assumption is some of you are already doing this, and, and I know this, I mean, because I have conversations with you. There, there are many of you that are, that are intimately woven into the lives of other people, and when they make dumb choices, you feel it, and it matters to you, and it hurts. Um, and sometimes it's left, you're left like, uh, I mean, I, there's been, I'll just be honest. There's been, I'm going to be honest for a second. It's not my notes. There's been so many times where I've been like, okay, that's it. I can't, I can't do anymore with that, that person. I'm done. And then God comes along like, oh, you get to make that decision, right? I'm like, ah, I guess not. And it just, it's like, you know what? Um, I, need, I need his help, man. I just, I need his help. Because if, if you're going to care about other people's stuff, it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be painful at times. And I guess, I guess I've been encouraged recently by this thought. I don't know if I should be encouraged by it or not, but 
Um, like even Jesus had a Judas, right? Like even Jesus had a Peter and like pretty much everybody else. You know, Judas is like the most extreme example, but after three years with the Lord of glory and his personal discipleship, Peter still denied him and ran away. Like he came back around, praise God, right? And so sometimes like I'm, I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm, you're just getting it all right now. Sometimes I just like, I'm clinging desperately to the fact that the Lord Jesus himself had a Peter. <laughs> and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to have some too. I'm going to have ups and downs as I'm trying to love and disciple people. It's good. There's going to be times where it's, there's victories and you can see growth. There's going to be times when it's like, what are we doing here, right? And, and I've been encouraged by the fact there was times Jesus seemed to get exasperated with the disciples. Do you, like, you remember that? How long must I be with you? I haven't said that to anybody yet. And so, I, I mean, to some degree, I feel like I still got a little wiggle room if, if, if the top pops, right? So, I don't know. I, I just, I love this church, and I know sometimes I'm, I'm preaching through my own stuff, man, and I can just talk to you guys about stuff. So, I hope that's okay. All right? That's where I'm at. I'm encouraged because even Jesus' disciples acted crazy, you know, Seeming half the time. So discipleship isn't easy, man. Loving people isn't easy. It's easier to, it's easier to do this thing the way, the way the West, Western mindset tells you to do it. Be an island unto yourself. Don't let your life integrate into anybody else's deep enough that they will affect you. And then you can kind of, you know, just, just survive that way. But uh, the truth is, maybe, maybe that's a safer existence, but it's in no way realizing the potential of what God's called us to. And it's, it, there is not as much potential joy in that existence as there is in taking the risk to really uh, be a part of what God's doing in the earth and a part of God's family, which means we're going to feel and deal with each other's stuff. Praise the Lord. Um, I, I realize that people are going to understand what I'm talking about and have been talking about to varying degrees. I just, I, I want to literally, genuinely, sincerely thank all of you that do understand what I'm saying and actually run your choices through the grid of not only how it's going to affect you or what you want, um, but how it will affect those who care about you, and, and most importantly, how it's going to reflect on your king. Like, there are, there are many of you in this church that you, you understand that principle, and I, and I watch you make life choices and run it through that grid, and I watch you not do things that you could do because of that grid, and I, I just want to thank you for that because it's, it's rare. It's a gift from God. I'm thankful to God for it most of all because he's done it in you. Uh, but I'm thankful for every one of you that, that like gets that and um, understands you, you, you're not doing this thing by yourself. And so your choices matter to other people. Uh, and sometimes it's hard, right, to, to think that way because um, we're selfish by nature. So I'm, I'm just thankful for everybody that, that does that, really, like from my heart. Thank you. Uh, verse 20 and 21. It says, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's, let's take that first here. Uh, the language of citizenship here would have meant very much to the Philippians because the Philippians were Roman citizens. They were, they were from Philippi, but also remember Rome was like Mac Daddy at this point. And so even though Philippi was geographically pretty far from Rome, they were actually Roman citizens. So they understood to some degree this idea of being part of this, this bigger, kind of grander thing, uh, even though they were like far away from it. And so he's intentionally using this language. Um, again, just kind of missional genius shining through. 
uh, this, this language is tied to the statement above because it is, uh, it's very difficult in a world constantly offering false saviors to keep our minds on things above and remember that we are sojourners, aliens, and ambassadors whose home is not in this world. When I say it's tied to the um, statement above, he's saying, uh, who, you know, the, the end of his description of those whose end is destruction is he says, he set they, who set their minds on earthly things. He says, for, so we can't do that because our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly await for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, all of the language here is very intentional. He talks about citizenship. He's painting a picture. Um, but also the Savior language, because sometimes men set themselves up as false saviors. Uh, this was true in ancient Rome. Like around 48 BC, Julius Caesar declared himself to be the universal Savior of mankind. Not bad. It's got a good ring to it. Whew! That brother was bold. Uh, and then it became a common title for whoever the ruling Caesar was. And so there was a lot of early Christians killed because they would not call Caesar Savior. That, that kind of stuck. And so that all this language is, is very vivid for them, and, and it matter, it's like very contextual, okay? Um, so sometimes men set themselves up as false saviors, which, which makes it hard to keep our mind on things above, not things beneath, right? And, not, and, and to keep our hope in, in the coming Savior. Uh, Jesus already obviously already came, but he's coming again. That's what he's talking about. Uh, sometimes we, however, generate false saviors and idols out of our own foolish hearts. Um, Every one of these false saviors is a, hear me, every one of these false saviors is a dedicated enemy of true joy. Every single one. So what we do is we 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 have in our own minds this idea of what of what hell is, right? So for some people it's it's my hell is being single or lonely. So for them, they generate up out of their heart this savior that's a relationship. It's it's this other person. If I can, if I can get that, I won't be lonely, or I won't be sad, or I won't be whatever it is. For some people, their hell is being married, right? So they literally, in their heart and mind, their Savior is a divorce. And what are they really saying there? I'm not happy, but I know how I could get happy. Go over here and do something crazy, right? I'm not happy because I'm lonely. Let me get a person. I'll be happy. I'm not happy in this marriage. Let, let, me, let me get out of this marriage, and then I'll be happy. Some people's hell is being unemployed. Their Savior will be a job. They literally come to the point where they believe if I, could, if I could just get the job, then I'll be fulfilled. Then I'll have purpose. Then my identity will be okay. Or some people, their hell is, they hate their job. So their savior is some get-rich-quick scheme, right? They click the link and they go to the thing and they spend the $5,000 to get the book that says nothing, right? Like, that was a bummer. Um, but if there was some other way I could make money that I didn't have to go to this job that I hate, that's my hell. My functional savior is some way to get a large lump of money. My functional savior is that lottery ticket every week, and then when the last Powerball drops and it's not my number, destruction again, right? Sadness and being overwhelmed again. The, the truth is, we got to make sure we say this, it's not sinful to desire a good job or a loving relationship. Not at all. But the minute we desire those things more than our true Savior and let our joy be dependent upon them, we have bitten the bait, the hook has been set, and pain will invariably follow. Every time. All right, we're in verse 21. Who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Who? 
if you didn't find anything to get excited about yet, I hope you have now. Paul expands on this idea in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 through 27. I'm going to read these to you quickly, uh, first half of 27. He says this, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. See what he's talking about? In Adam came the first death. Sin was, came into the world along with death. So he said, um, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. When he has abolished all rule and authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Woo! I had a rough week, y'all, but I'm feeling good right now. Those are some good verses. Come on, man. Do you believe that? Do you understand the ramifications and implications of what I just read to you? Man, he's talking about everything is getting put in subjection underneath his feet, including death. That's the final one. The final smackdown. You're done. Jesus rules over absolutely everything. Returning the kingdom back to its original intent, man. That's where we're headed. And some days, here's some days, there is hope in this life because of Jesus. But some days you won't be able to see it. Some days you won't be able to see how the mess you're in the middle of right now, how it's going to come out okay. You do not have God's perspective or his viewpoint. But here's what we always have. And here's what we need to have written upon our hearts. Even if today I can't see how in this temporal context it's going to work out okay, I know it is because he's working all things for the good of those that love and are called according to his purpose. However, even if I can't see how it's going to get that way today or in this life, I know by the end of it all, absolutely everything that's gone wrong because of sin is going to be made right. Everything's getting put in subjection under his feet. And, and, and it's by that same power. Hold on. By the exertion, oh, hold on, he's going to transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself, the very same magnitude of power that's going to bring absolutely everything under his subjection, he's going to turn that power loose on us so that he brings our humble broken bodies into conformity with the beauty of his image. We are going to be resurrected, friends. And some days, I know, you're struggling to find something to have joy in. But let this always be something that your joy can be rooted into so deeply. This unchanging truth that no matter what it looks like today, there's going to come a day when the beauty and the glory of God himself is going to be unleashed upon his people. We will be resurrected and every single struggle is going to be gone. Every single tear is going to be wiped away. And we are going to be in uninhibited, glorious joy and peace forever. And if I can't find joy in that, I don't know what's wrong with me. That's the truth. Now, most of the time, if we discipline our perspective and our thought patterns and we, we discipline our mind and we stay grateful in, in, our, in our standard perspective, 
Most of the time, we'll be able to find additional things that are of God in this life to have joy about. But ultimately, in the beautiful truth of the gospel, that even though in our humanity we have sinned and fallen short of God's perfect glory, but in Jesus, that problem has been fixed. He came and lived the perfect life that we could not. The Bible says he died in our place for our sins, and then he rose from the grave, and he's calling us after him. He was the first fruits. He went first. We're going just like him, friends. So come on. I know today was rough. I know this week was rough. But come on, y'all. We're going to be with God forever. Are you happy about that? Come on now. I want you to be more than happy about it. I want you to have joy. And I'm talking about joy unshakable. I want you to be able to rejoice in the Lord even in the midst of the hardest day of your life. And I'm not saying that doesn't mean you're not. Ex- Here's the thing. We, we, and we try to do this to God too. We try to think you can only have one emotion at a time. I can rejoice in a deep, profound way in this beautiful truth while I'm weeping in sadness over something else. You understand what I'm talking about? We got to understand that's true. We are made in the image of God. He can have multiple emotions going on at one time, and so can we. And, and, and I say emotions because I'm trying to explain what I'm talking about, but ultimately rejoicing and having joy in the Lord is, is, is a deeper, surer, more strong anchor. It's, it's more than an emotion. It's more than happiness. And it's something, it's something that is rooted down in waters that are so deep, man, that they, and they never, ever run dry. And so no matter what you are going through, you can have the joy of the Lord. That doesn't mean you're a perma-smile weirdo that never expresses another emotion. Do you feel me on that? Because sometimes that's what people think. If I have the joy of the Lord, that means I can never let anybody know that I feel sadness or anything. Other than happy, right? That's not what it means. My joy and trust and peace and hope can be anchored in this beautiful truth, and I can still be having a hard day, man. The beauty of that means I don't have to front to you. It means I don't have to wear a mask anymore. It means I can tell the truth. And you'll know that just because I'm, I'm experiencing something other than elation doesn't mean I'm letting go of my faith. There's, there's much beauty in that. I hope you understand why. This whole flow of thought, chapter 3, on rejoicing in the Lord, it ends with a beautiful, eternal, and unchanging hope. It points us to our eternal resurrection and God's eternal reign. And I, it makes perfect sense. Rejoice in the Lord. Here's a bunch of ways that, that the enemy's going to fight against that. Here's this last thing that if you're struggling, just think about this right here. Rejoice in the Lord, friends. Rejoice in Him. May we be a people who are wise and humble enough to recognize the strengths of others and follow their example as they follow Jesus. May we be a people who not only say we love our King, but joyfully submit to His rule as proof. And may we be a people whose hearts and minds are set upon eternity, even as we accomplish our mission here in this world. For our joy and his glory. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we thank you for this set of verses. I thank you for the command and invitation to rejoice in you. I thank you that it's possible, even though there are enemies constantly trying to pull away from that, trying to stop us and create roadblocks that would stop us from uh, delighting in you and and having our joy be found in you. Uh, Lord, I thank you that 
we are wise to the schemes of the enemy. I thank you, Lord, that even though uh, there are constant temptations to be a moralist and to think that we're, we're somehow good enough or, or to be a relativist and think, you know what, it really doesn't matter that much. Even, even though those constant counter-narratives that, that try to tear away at the beauty and strength of your gospel, even though those are constantly, we're being barraged with those, Lord, uh, we're not going to give in to that. We know the truth of your word. And we ask for the help and anointing of your Holy Spirit, God, when we're in the midst of struggle and battle to remember these things, for them to be a vibrant beautiful truth for us. Help us, God, to stay encouraged in the midst of struggle and to remember that your joy, that when, when your word describes your joy as unmovable and unshakable, that's because its source is unchanging and unmoving and unshakable. I thank you. What you've declared is going to happen. What you have done is not going to change. The cross will never be undone. The resurrection of our King will never be undone. And the glorious destiny that we are going to share with you forever, nothing is going to stop that. And so even when everything around us seems to be screaming that you're not in control, God, let us remember these great and beautiful truths and know that absolutely what you have done and what you are doing is absolutely going to be finished. We trust you for these things. We ask for your grace and anointing and help to believe it when it's hard and when we can't see it. Lord, help us to walk by faith and not by sight. For your glory, O oh God, for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www dot mylovecitychurch dot org